Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Speak Plainly podcast, where we speak plainly about things that matter. I'm your host, Owl Medicine, and in today's podcast, I've got a real treat for you. I have with me today Trip Omshanti, who is a a yogi, a amateur Sanskritologist, and author, and last but not least, friend. I'm really excited to let you in on the conversation that we had. It was a real joy. I hope that you enjoy this. We cover all kinds of things about trauma from the uh, from kind of a Western perspective, a little bit from an Eastern perspective, just to frame, asking him about how trauma is integrated and thought of as a yogi. What has been his process? What has been his understanding as he has moved through the yogic practices and through studying the sutras, which he wrote a book on. And you can get that book on Amazon right now. Without any further ado, here is my conversation with Trip Om Shanti. All right. So I'm really happy to have you on here. I'm excited to have to have you as a guest on my podcast. That's a brand new thing for me, um, as I was mentioning. And yeah, well, uh, there's there's a lot of overlap. I find my background is uh, yoga and uh, study yoga uh, and uh, Vaishnavism, practice of uh, devotional bhakti towards Lord Krishna. And uh, my journey, whether I wanted to admit it to myself or not, is basically uh, working through your trauma in the most realistic sense possible. Um, and identifying trauma in, in, in your practice and other people and the way we communicate, you know, and, and not just with people, but with nature, how nature communicates trauma, how evolution works, it's all there. And uh, so when I read your book, which I had the pleasure of doing recently, I see so much overlap, you know, in the affirmations that are coming out from the research that you've made and the life you've lived, um, citing authors like Gabor Mate. Um, there's so much overlap in, into how we identify these experiences uh, and their effect on us. And how I also see that overlap in, in scripture and, and uh you know, forms of meditation, the Yoga Sutras, and these ancient uh, Sanskrit parables that were written thousands of years ago, kind of also hitting on the same thing. Uh, but we don't use the word trauma in uh, in, the, in these words in the, in the Sanskrit, which we could talk about later, which I find a unique uh, take, you know, why we don't have that word specifically. You don't read that word if you read any old ancient text. Oh, I find that very interesting. Could you uh, let's just dive into that now? So, um, the the book is m- my listeners know because that's what most of what I've been talking about for the last three years is pieces in the book and then other random things about health and life. It's all about trauma. But the reason that we really wanted to have this conversation was because we connected briefly about the overlap um, of a few things, but especially uh, and specifically dissociation and trauma. And to hear that trauma, that what we're talking about is basically identical but the 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 words that we use are different and i that's always that's always one of the most interesting things to me because there are only phenomena 
that's all there is. There is phenomena. Mm -hmm. There are events that are the phenomena. And then everything else is the way that we describe or experience that. So I'm really interested to hear what if they don't use trauma, how is it framed? Yeah. Yeah, you know, what's amazing about the word trauma is that it's like a clinically defined word. And it not only is it clinically defined, but you can also break it down into different forms of, of trauma and different uh, sources of trauma. It's just it's a study and people dedicate their whole lives to just breaking this word apart. But if you rewind ourselves to the times when a lot of these uh, religious scriptures are written, whether it's the Bible or, or anything, uh, Sanskrit, the Upanishads, the Old Testament, um, they came from a time where we have limited resources in our vocabulary and our means of expressing, especially our means of dissecting the human uh, uh, consciousness, if you will, which I feel like you find a lot more uh, uh, um, taken, you find a lot more taken apart in Eastern religions than you might find in, in older Western religions. Western religions are more story or parable based, but Eastern religions will actually break it down to the science of like the consciousness is these five layers of, yep. of thought. You know, you have the consciousness, which is the more like you're seeing things, hearing things with your intelligence, all the way to different layers of subconsciousness controlling them. And then within those, these are just technical terms. They'll use words like samskara, uh, which are imprints. You could think like grooves on a record that imprint, uh, you could call this trauma uh, or different uh, kind of like messages, happenings that happen to us that now have scarred uh, these, uh, these memories into different layers of our consciousness. And other uh, schools of thought like uh, Vedanta, you hear the word uh, uh, vasanas, which actually is from the Sanskrit word for perfume which I find is a very poetic way to describe a, uh, a, uh, a samskara. So it's, instead of saying it's like something cut into our consciousness, it's like a perfume that wafts in and out at varying strengths that encourages us to think a certain way or desire a certain Love thing. that. But in Sanskrit, you have a language that uh, probably kicked off around 1500, 2000 BC, uh, earlier, you can go earlier uh, than that, and we'll call it Vedic Sanskrit. But classical Vedic Sanskrit and classical Sanskrit is like a, almost like two different languages. You could say it's like Old English to Modern English. Is a modern English speaker wouldn't understand Old English only partially. Right. Pick out some words in there, and there's a few words that remain, but mostly we, it would be indistinguishable. So uh, we'll ignore Vedic Sanskrit. Just jump into classical Sanskrit. Classical Sanskrit lasted at least over 2,000 years of its publishing era, kind of capping off around 1500 AD. After that, a couple books were written just as a tribute to it, but it wasn't really a widely used publishing language, if you will. Right. And if anything came out with Sanskrit after that, either it was in this special time period where it just got written, like the... Uh, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, I think, was dated around 1700s. Uh, these are like exceptions to the rules. Or you have people who are writing translations to a different language and they're noting a Sanskrit book. So we'll just say Sanskrit kind of ended as a language around that time period. Uh, when you have a language that, that, that stretches for that much time, you really need a dictionary almost every 200 year period. And you could think English, like think of it like right. it's the 1800s right now. People spoke a way different English back then. They used totally different vernacular yeah, I remember that a, we would never use. I remember a stat from some etymology thing that was uh, talking about how we, it's like we lose 
we lose one and a half words every two years or something in a living language, in a living language that a, that a modern population is speaking, that we lose like a one and a half words every two years because of just- that's really sad. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna, <laughs> pour, a, I'm gonna pour, I'm gonna pour a glass of orange juice for, on the floor for the words that didn't make it. This. This year, you know, I feel bad. I should have a proper burial. We what should. I'm suggesting. Yeah. Oh, that's so that's very interesting. It, it, I want to come back to this this the thing. So, what would give me the word? Uh, it wasn't sankara, but what was the word for scar? And then what was the word for perfume that you were talking about, and um, that they were using rather than? It's a vasana. Vasana was the perfume. Vasana is perfume. Okay. And samskara is like the uh, imprint. Samskara. Okay. That's Which is interesting. Funny. Now I'm thinking about it because this words break down. Yeah, and it and it's and it's describing. It's just it's more more accurately describing the event because one like the, the samskara can that can. That's talking about the event itself that that imprinted the thing that left the imprint, the conditioning, whether that was traumatic conditioning or non-traumatic mm-hmm. conditioning. The imprint is the imprint. But then if it's traumatic, exactly. that imprint has a smell and it wafts come like in Chinese medicine. We have a similar concept um, when illnesses come and go or when pain comes and goes or when pain moves around the body we call it wind and there's a, there's a, a number mm. of different things that can attribute to wind but if there is any pain and it moves around the body it is it's a form of of wind but I like that there's there's a term specifically for the event and then there's a term for the lingering effects because for me, and writing a, a book on trauma, well, I, the lingering effects are what most of us are talking about when we're talking about our trauma. We're not talking about the samskara. Or, yeah, we're not talking about the samskara. We're not talking even about the imprint or even the event. Mm-hmm. We're talking about that triggerable status that our nervous system lives in. And we're talking about those moments when the perfume gets a little too heavy. That's exactly. Exactly. Uh, both of them actually are widely quoted in two different respective cultures of Sanskrit, and they both roughly refer to the same thing. Uh, so you, you said that one of them is like the action, one of them is the event. Both of them are kind of that role in their respective things. So like in uh, uh, Vedantism, I'll hear a lot of Vasana, a lot of the scriptures they have there. We'll use that word. And then in uh, Vaishnavism and Bhakti, I'll hear samskara a lot but i'm sure you would might even see both in both or it's just the era of sanskrit that they attribute their sanskrit they call it from yeah that that they sense. use that word and and that's the part that i wanted to get to that i find interesting is because um is because you would need uh, a dictionary for every hundred years of sanskrit and we don't do that with any kind of dictionary you could find in sanskrit uh, what you do is you have a dictionary, a Sanskrit dictionary. There's websites that are, are put, pulled together by the Sanskritologists of the world that are basically all all, th- all 3,000, 2,000 years of published literature wow. in one book. And um, it's like a soup, if you will, because you can't just say like, oh, he said 
you know, samskara, you know, like, what does that mean? You know, it could, it could mean just samkara. It could mean like the something that's equal, the doer, kara. You know, it depends what year you're in. You know, like tamas, for example, means, um, uh, it means, uh, originally means darkness in Vedic Sanskrit. And then as it got to classical Sanskrit, it started to mean ignorance. It meant like it's more poetic. And uh, what this means to trauma is that trauma is to me what all of these things were pointing at, whether it was some skaras or vasanas or dukkha, which just means suffering. You know, these, uh, you know, you see this a lot in uh, the Bible too. Uh, you know, just suffering and pain. You know, these more poetic, story-based parables about like why we hurt. You know, and mm-hmm. how Jesus is here to reveal that mm-hmm. to us. You know, um, and really, what it comes down to is this clinical definition of trauma and how we're affected by it, how we we work through it. And, and I got to see that firsthand when I started practicing uh, yoga as a physical asana, because as a physical movement, you're, you're working through the physical uh, um, triggers mm-hmm. of, your, of your pain. And that doesn't have to be like what you called in your book, a, uh, like a Hollywoodized version of uh, capital T trauma, I think you called mm-hmm. it. <laughs> Because that's what everyone thinks. I remember when I was telling people I was going through these experiences, people were like, you know, you were never like, you know, you were never like abused when you were a kid or something like this, you know, but, but there was a constant trauma. I grew up with an alcoholic father, not to say that, you know, I, I deserve my capital T, if you will, (laughs) but, but I had, I had these experiences that, that triggered some very real consequences in my life, like autoimmune disorders Mm -hmm. and and all sorts of issues that I've inherited because of that. And when I practiced the physical yoga, I was confronting them and not as, uh, as an event, like, Oh, this one time I never resolved this one moment when I was a kid, nothing like that, but rather just this general personality that I inherited Uh and how I trigger myself to these, to these little T moments you know, as you call them and how they collectively create me if I want to be that person or not. So now I can choose, you know, at a higher precipice, do I want to uh, identify with this or not? So that, that was my, my great uh, affirmation, my, my aha moment while reading your book. <laughs> it's oh, like, ah, I've done this too. And, yeah. <laughs> well, and that's what's so awesome about, about yoga and movement is Trauma, like, I really find that analogies and parables and things are genuinely the best way to communicate. Um, You can be as specific as you want, but unless somebody has the, like, exact same, like, bent towards specificity that you do, analogies work really well. And our, like, our trauma, it's, it really, there, a lot of times it feels like a, like a, a really a bratty teenager or a, like a horrible boss or these like those big deals that you don't want to deal with. And so the most like sometimes we learn we realize that the best way to deal with something is indirectly. Like if you know some so-and-so hates you and you really need to get something done, you can ask like, or like I had, a, I had siblings growing up. So like you'd have your siblings go ask mom if you could like leave the room or whatever. And I feel like, Yoga does that so well because 
when we think of trauma, at least in the West, when we think of trauma, we think of the psychological scars that it leaves us with. And so and with our very one to one reductionistic like way of doing thinking and science and whatnot in the West, then we automatically go, okay, a psychological problem needs a psychological fix. And that's just not it in a lot of cases. I really, really, really see this. I see it working so much better for people to have an indirect approach because like whatever psychological thing happened created a very real physiological analog in all of us. That is that imprint and dealing with what and what we're dealing with when our trauma is triggered and the perfume starts wafting is physiological in its basis and when you trace Mm. back brains and nervous systems evolutionarily all the way 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 before human beings brains evolved for one purpose and it was locomotion movement was the very first commandment for brains. Movement was. That's why the nervous system was was created. And I feel like these indirect approaches, like having a regular movement practice where you can face being uncomfortable and you can face like, okay, well, I, ate a, I, I, I smoked too much weed and ate too many cookies last night and now I can't get like my, my twist isn't as far as it used to be and being like, okay, and accepting that and going as far as you can that day and moving on, you know, there's such a wisdom in that. And I, and it, and so much of the wisdom to me is because of the indirectness, which is really funny for me as a person who I pride myself on being very direct, but the older and wiser I get, I'm finding that an indirect approach works really well for certain things. And I think trauma is definitely one of those. It lives actively in our nervous systems every day. And it is what keeps us triggerable, for lack of a better word. And having a physical practice that you go to every day or multiple times a week that you can kind of. And that's that's why that's why the only kind of Ashtanga I've really or the only kind of yoga I've really enjoyed was Ashtanga because it was exactly the same every time. So I could just like oh, nice. memorize that. And that's your fault because um, I'd never done any yoga until y- your class. Oh. I'd never been to a yoga class in my life until yours in Barcelona. Um, oh, and wow. From that day forward, the only yoga I've really done since then is Ashtanga. Because for me, there was something wow. about doing the same thing every time because I am not a routine person. Not even close. I really wish that I was. I I understand and and have felt the power of routines, but that's really surprising. That I don't do that. I don't do routines. Yeah, you don't do routines, but you end up getting committed to one of the most routine practices that you could think of. Yeah, and it's and and that's that's why is I guess I don't do routines well, but I do do obsessive well. And then, like, and uh, maybe that's why. Maybe that's why. There you go. That's actually it. Yeah. Because it just, it really, it really helped to be able to just do the same thing every time and let my, let my brain turn off 
and just be with my body and not have to think about what movement I'm doing next or listen to what like what movement I'm supposed to do next or what breath is supposed like none of that. It just did the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And it do it. it was, yeah, and it was it, yeah, it was amazing. And like you said, I think it has a lot to do with the architecture. Oh, the architecture. Uh, the architecture of uh, of consciousness, I think, is built upon uh, a physical stature. Just like we were saying, evolutionarily, we uh, our bodies existed before our brains did. And so, on that note, anecdotally speaking, I believe that we are a physical, uh, emotional being first, and then we're a speculative being later. And so, when we get affected by anything particularly like traumas or, or even non-traumas, just any kind of conditioning. I think that a conditioning, the stuff that lasts is in a physical body of ours. And that's where we inherit it. So we hold it. Um, and I think speculation is great for becoming aware of it and noticing it there. But I, and this could just be me speaking because I understand there's a lot of people that find a lot of, of help from talk therapy. Uh, so I don't want to discredit that advantage that they have uh, at least i know for me i'm already super heady guy so and i feel like i'm very aware as much as i can be aware of myself intellectually i almost like beg for new books to pop up on the nonfiction shelves just to be like maybe there's something i i don't know yet you know um but physically is like an ocean to me um to be able to like uh, look at the what I call the the fingerprint of the breath. You know that within a single breath, you should be able to register uh, someone's entire life from from just the texture of how they exhale or the the tension in their inhalation should tell you their childhood and their traumas. Everything should be within that one one breath. And for me, I've been able to discover quite a lot within that. But it's still an ocean. To me. And within that ocean, as shallow as I've swam, I've been able to uncover so much of my own profile and what makes me me and be able to, to let go of upsides of that through the practice, which is interesting. Yeah, because I agree. I think we are speculative beings dead last. And I think evolutionary, like from an evolutionary biology perspective, I don't think you could come to any other conclusion. Like our, our conscious and people talk about like the conscious mind and I only use like 10% or 5% of our conscious mind. And my immediate thought every time is like, do you know how expensive consciousness is? Like to be able to command your attention and your awareness on a biological level. Do you have any idea how expensive that is? It is so expensive. How can you afford in this economy? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like people, we, we've got to understand that our bodies are an ecosystem. It is like one out of every hundred cells in us is actually human. We are an ecosystem and... It's so expensive. So, of course, we're only using like they're like we're only using 10 percent of our conscious brain. And it's like I think you have that backwards. I think where it's like we're, consciousness is only taking up 10 percent of the brain maximum because any more than that is really, really inefficient. And you're going to cause a lot of other things to like not get what it needs because we're trying to focus our attention. It's very 
It's very calorically inefficient. That's why the brain's favorite thing to do in the world is habits, which is why I like my obsessive thing, Mm. because I can pick one new habit and obsess over it. And then I get the benefits of having of, of having that. But my brain enjoys that because it is a it is an efficiency process. It's about how can I take this one thing that takes up so much real estate in my mind that I know is beneficial if I were to do this all of the time and keep doing it until the amount of real estate that it takes is smaller and smaller and smaller. I don't know where I was going with yeah, that, but that so was it just the becomes the, yeah. yeah, no, I, I get it. I mean, it's one of the, uh, the uh, one of my favorite takeaways from uh, – uh, Judaism is basically the art of elevating the mundane. So, uh, you know, like in, in Orthodox Judaism, there's a prayer for almost everything, like putting on your right shoe, putting on your left shoe, putting on your belt, putting on your pants, you know, there's a prayer for everything, for every single aspect of it. To the point where you just start cycling through, you're like, oh, what am I doing now? Oh, I'm going to walk through a doorway, you know? <laughs> What's right. the prayer for that? And then you realize, like, this is, this is the moment. This is like this. I'm about to walk through this doorway. This is actually one of the most important moments of my entire life. It's everything's led up to the, me walking out of my bathroom door, <laughs> and, and 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 it's like a satori in, Jap- in Japanese uh, Zen Buddhism. The way they describe it, it's like a ha a ha moment. Like I have left the bathroom. <laughs> And it's in that moment you become like there's no samskara, there's nothing. There's just you, your grace. You've taken the most mundane thing and, and made it everything, you know? Yep. By yep. virtue of habit, like what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> the sacred is made of the mundane. There there isn't there is nothing that isn't to me anyway. There's nothing that's sacred that wasn't that didn't originate mundane. You know, even if it was the mundane labor to build giant cathedrals and castles and 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 stupas and just like all of the all of it it's it really is as simple as that and i think with trauma at least for me when you carry that much pain and that much grief you want something in the world to be the the polarized version of that you, there's so much pain and grief mm. that you carry in your past that we look we we look and expect that like a level of grandiosity and and just extremes and that's i mean that, totally. that goes into that goes into everything from people like diving into being super jesus or diving into super heroin you know it, like the biggest temples in the world. One of my uh, dear teachers, Atmananda Udison, is an amazing, amazing teacher. I have so much to say about him. But he's a, he's also a Belgian man. So he has this wonderful French accent. He's a, a, a monk, I think, 40 years as a, a monk in India now. Uh, and before that, 10 or 15 years as a Christian monk in uh, Bethlehem. But anyway, he told me once in India, he's like, he's like, all this business, all this spiritual business, it's always publish or perish. <laughs> it's either you say something or you don't, and no one ever knows you existed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it comes back to do I build a grand joie temple? Do I build, is that like the only way 
that my life has validity, that my teaching has validity, is if I make something insane and hyper-realistic version of this affirmation, or do I die with it and no one ever hears it? The tree falls in the woods and no one was ever there. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I 10 years as a Christian monk in Bethlehem and then decade. That's really cool. I bet that would that would be a really fun person to spend time with. That would be really neat. Oh, he's the best. I, ha- I mean, honestly, if you ever have a chance to meet him, he's actually one of the most profound individuals I've ever had the pleasure of spending time with. Oh. Uh, he's, he's someone who's genuinely just contemplated some, some wonderful uh, thought processes. That, that's it. That's the whole game. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm also and, very... You know, his, Go ahead. His line is, uh, you know, Maharshi, Maharaj, I don't know if you know these guys from Tiramavalai and uh, Vedanta, the idea that it kind of like there's an adjacent to Zen Buddhism here that the um, the uh, the apex of, of, the, of the thought is to reach a place of, 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 of what Zen Buddhists would call no mind or Vedanta, you say non-reality, there's no reality, you know, only that which is, isn't. What isn't is, you know, that paradoxical lexicon, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a who's who's doing it? Um, another a, a neurobiologist and um and speaker and he's super famous now, but he's he's talking about the same thing, trying to get people to understand it through the the language of the headless observer. That's what um it was some teacher of his introduced him to the con the concept of the headless observer and 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 he there's a there's an app that they're doing the 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 waking up app actually is what it's called and there's quite a few weeks he really gets into this where it's almost like okay bro we get it but um the um, i mean the guided meditations where he just he's constantly having people be like okay now like what are you experiencing and now look for the thing that's experiencing it and event like and it's a very uncomfortable thing when you first sit down and do it you're like okay looking for the observer and you're like okay well i uh, you have this sense of self because you're like in a body and you feel cold or warmth or gravity or like squishing or pressure or whatever but anyway that's a, that that's a fun aside i wanted to before uh we get off i wanted to talk to you about the book that you've already written and the one that you're writing now <laughs> yeah uh so i've written quite a few books but only one of them has met the light of day uh that was a uh translation from uh sanskrit to english of the yoga sutras and my intention was that as I was studying them, uh, starting 15 years ago, I couldn't find anything that was uh, um, that could touch upon the the same kind of uh, lingua franca that you know you and me share through uh, our experience defining what trauma is, for example, uh, and also kind of like the sober sense, uh, the sober interpretation of what yoga could be, because you have on one side a lot of older books that say yogis can fly, they can move like light they can pass through walls uh and to me it doesn't have to be so fantastic it's actually very simple very easy to understand truths there uh for example uh in the yoga sutras it says you uh, the yogi one of the cds the great powers is that you could become you could uh transform into the body of any other being but if you 
practice uh, yoga practice, uh, you, you may acquire a sense of empathy or a sense of uh, disillusionment of the self that allows you to very easily be in the bodies of other people. And when you look at it that way, as a very practical sense of knowledge that's very useful to use. And I didn't find any work that was sharing that. And I was having this download at the time while I was researching it and studying the Sanskrit. So I kind of wanted to share the experience if it would be useful to anyone or not. So I just wrote it and it took me four years to write it. Wow. Uh, and um, published it into an app for uh, iOS and uh, Google Play Store so everyone could download it and research it. You can hear me chanting the sutras if you want to learn how to chant them as well. Uh, so that was the book I wrote. And the book I'm writing is a little bit less uh, uh, academic. It's more of a, uh, a humorous and mildly offensive uh, interpretation of, of humanity's relationship with religion. Uh, so the joke is that it's, it's, it's the story of God as a woman who uh, accidentally creates the universe and all of humankind. And then the book uh, kicks off with humankind basically mansplaining her, telling her who she is, first of all, that she's a man, <laughs> and what what she or he enjoys, like virgin sacrifices, even though she never asked for that. Right. But they're, they're like, well, clearly, you would want that. Clearly, obviously. you're you. Yeah. Totally. So I play on a lot of uh, very common tropes that we find in, in religious scripture as well as uh, religious culture and uh, the, the 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 line between the affirmation uh, to the mega church how do we get there and the thought process that goes into the 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 path of hyper reality that we find in religion all told through a mildly offensive sometimes sexual uh story of of god's uh, evolution of her basically finding herself through humans and humans finding it themselves through god and uh what that is like that's um, good i'm so excited to read that i'm so <laughs> so excited to read that if you need beta readers send it my way i'll be happy to that that's gonna be really really oh, cool. fun that's gonna be really fun like, and what is the title what is the how can people find your the the, the book that did make it to the light of day it's called uh, Yoga Kata Yoga Sutras. So Kata means a story. So Yoga Kata Yoga Stories Yoga Sutras by Trip Om Shanti. That's me. And then the next book, I'm still searching for a title. But I think I'm probably going to call it The Heretic's Bible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh... Oh, I love that. I really, really love that. We still have time. I was just looking at, um, we still have time. So I've got a few more things I wanted to ask you. I wanted to make sure, um, I wanted to talk about dissociation a little bit and what, you, what the yoga sutras can, um, what they're talking about with, uh, with uh, trauma. And is, is that even a concept that really shows up? I mean, cause really what we're talking about is, is escapism and trying to numb those, those imprints. What, what language is used to describe those types of events in the sutras? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And it's like very easily misinterpreted too when approaching uh, the Yoga Sutras or any kind of Eastern philosophy because to an escapist, that already is your predisposition. Once you start learning about Eastern religion, the whole thing just immediately sounds like escape Disneyland, basically. Oh, you're leaving your body. Oh, you're 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 disconnecting. This is like the ketamine of religion. This is great, you know? <laughs> but we have to be really careful because it really isn't. It's about engendering uh, those qualities about ourselves to the point uh, uh, super becoming super intimate with them. And that's why it's also suggested as as uh, an unbreakable aspect of the culture is that you have to have a, a living guru uh, teach you these things. Because with, and this is this is the part because without the guru, if you just have the teaching and the teaching alone, escapism is easy. Or if you have a teacher, let's say that you just have for a couple of years and then you move to a different teacher escapism is just it's it's perfectly simple it's like i read this i am no mind i am not this body you know or i am god or i i can practice this this state of mind where i've let go of all things you know but if you have a guru the guru will be like no 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 you gotta wash the dishes <laughs> get off the meditation mat. go take care of the house you know like go do this do that do this do that. if you have kids it's also the same same thing too it's like, <laughs> I was kind of wondering. But, um, <laughs> um, yeah, because uh, at first thought, it, it seems very like escapist reality, but really the goal is to engender the, um, you know, the emotional and physical world that we have and then see the world through it, through the context that we are also beyond it, living in a greater context. So paradoxically, both worlds at the same time. Yeah. I'm no master of this concept at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, you were talking earlier about the the way that you were interpreting the texts and of like being able to be in someone else's body. And when I when I hear that, I my mind immediately goes to the exact same place that yours did of like it teaches empathy. You know, um, it like it teaches a lightness that they're and the part of the reason a friend of mine nailed this for me so well um, in the UK. Uh, Flowers asked me one day, we're talking about Chinese medicine and Flowers said, do you think people just don't take acupuncture seriously because it's just so poetic? And I just went, <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. When I talk about like your heart, like your heart chi slackening and doing these, like it sounds so, it sounds so flowery and poetic. It can't possibly have any real effect on our health when we learn in the West our health from a purely biochemical perspective. And I feel like a lot of old teachings, the TCM is rich with them that are, and when I when you extend that out to to religion, I think you get some of the most deep and profound and realistic understandings of what the original intentions were. Because for me, it takes it takes a certain level of interest and comfortability and uh, 
and a depth of knowledge to even want to write about your religion, your understanding of the world, your perspectives and your viewpoints. And when you understand something so well and it brings you lightness and joy and peace and whatever, you wax poetically. It's a thing that we do. And when we are planning on these, the words that we write lasting for an undetermined amount of time into the future, we want not only the architecture of what we're saying, we also want it to be said, it's not about what we say, it's how we say it, right? It's but it's It's got to be both. And so when we're writing and discussing these things, whether it's from a Christian perspective or a yogic or a Chinese medicine or whatever, you're trying to you're trying to both include the architecture, the basic message, the like the nuts and bolts schematics of how a thing works and transmit the the love that we have and the joy and the and the the excitement and and all of that, you know? And I I think when yeah. I when I found Spinoza and like when I found Spinoza and the ethics, I was I was like, "Oh, this yes this is this like i've had pieces of these thoughts all like throughout my life of like maybe these things weren't meant literally and if you take them metaphorically in some type of way they suddenly make a lot more sense and that's why i love spinoza so much esperanza spinoza because he or barack depending on which like before after he was exiled um from the freest country in the world at the time, it was like the 1640s and the freest country in the world banned everything he ever wrote or would write by the time he was 24 years old because uh, he wrote a book called The Ethics. I didn't realize that. I didn't yeah. know that about him. He wrote, I mean, he wrote The Ethics, which was basically oh. a very – he was Jewish and his family were refugees. They wound up in the um, – well, a, a few different places, but he started writing. The Netherlands, right? Yeah, the, in the Netherlands. He he started writing trying to find and describe through pure logic, only through our conscious mind, what the most ethical way to be is, regardless of what religion. a heretic. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And basically, the um, and because, like, Euclidean math and geometry was all, all of the rage in the 1600s. He, as any good author does, starts the beginning of the ethics with a list of of definitions. And it's like, all right, if we're going to describe, if we're going to if we're going to go through this, we need to understand what these things mean. And so he does a list of definitions and then it's like a whole bunch of if then statements basically. Until you get to, okay, well, if God is omnipotent, omniscient, like like omnipresent and all of these things, then what what does that mean that God could be on a purely rational perspective? And his his conclusion was God is literally matter. Anything that is made up of matter in the universe is God. That is the only way it could be in all places, at all times, knowing all things, present to all things, observing all things. That's the only that's the only that's the only option. And so the statement that got him 
like ruined was anytime that you say the word God, I can replace it with the word nature and it doesn't change the meaning of the sentence ever and vice versa, that they are two things that are absolutely the same. And coming from a... Would you find in other uh, languages? Yes, you do. I mean, for me, coming from a from a very, very religious household, especially my father with his uh, with his associate's degree in Bible doctrine and theology, he was an absolute oh, wow. Bible thumper from the time I was raised. We used to we used to mail chick tracks. I don't know if anybody remembers chick tracks, but they were these ridiculously in your face. Like there was like Holy Joe. There was a guy. He was a soldier. Um, he went to war. He was in a foxhole and he got shot through the head and then goes to hell. And that's that's the the, the chick track is him going to hell and being burned alive and being like oh, for eternity, being like, I wish I would have believed in Jesus. And it's like and there are hundreds upon hundreds of these. And these are what we used to mail out as children to every single house in all of these different towns around our area. We eventually covered every single house in all of Indiana at one point, apparently. Um, so I come from a very, very, very religious home. And at one point toward the end of my like high school, the only person my father wouldn't argue doctrine with was me because I showed up to class in high school to my hour and a half study hall with my King James and my newer international version and my Strong's Concordance and my Matthew Henry commentaries. And I dug through and was still I mean. These were all like I was really trying to figure stuff out because I'm still like trying to pray the gay away, but I'm also like trying to prove like there was so many things. It was very interesting. And I had a huge chip on my shoulder about Christianity for ages because of that. Because of my father and all of the sins that he hid behind his religion. And when I found Spinoza, it all clicked in this very practical way that you're talking about of uh, like of going, OK, well, what does this mean? Maybe, maybe it doesn't have to be so fantastical. Maybe there is. Maybe it is as fantastical as that. I leave room for that as well. But maybe it doesn't have to be so fantastical. And maybe things can be really, really, really simple. And so now through the lens that I, I gained through Spinoza, I haven't found since then a religion or worldview or perspective that doesn't fit in perfectly. Like there is no totally. worldview or perspective that is not congruous with mine. And that frees me up so much to actually be present, to actually be empathetic, to actually be paying attention instead of like getting getting my dander up because we're disagreeing on something. And I and because of that, I miss the next point or two that somebody has to say. I really no, think I totally agree. Can, it's sobriety. It is. It is sobriety, sobriety. Of spirituality. You you know, my father was an alcoholic and he would run to the Bible in order to kind of like heal him. And it, and it did actually help him relieve himself of his alcohol addiction. However, it's kind of like trading one for the other, even though Christianity is an inherently an alcoholic beverage, right? you can make it into one oh, yeah. and you could drink it mm -hmm. and you could become just as drunk and just as non-functional to your family and to the world around you through consuming it. And what you're consuming is not 
Christianity, even though you're in the church and reading the Bible, you're doing all the steps, you're actually filtering everything that's coming into you and brewing it into a hallucinogenic and you're intoxicated by it. And, and you see that with a lot of people who choose the path of spirituality, religion is like a hospital. So a lot, it's very easy to look at a hospital and say, look at all these sick people, (laughs) you know? Yeah. The community is normally a majority of anyone I, I have to uh, work with. You know, the spiritual community is, is there because they're running from something. And they're more likely to want the intoxicating version of the practice. Even yeah. though that's not what the practice is. That's not what, what should be consumed. And I think like your story and my story are very similar in that we came to the same sources that our fathers had. But we don't want to take the uh, the hallucinogenic version of the intoxicating right. version. We want to make it sober, keep my feet on the ground. I could still come to the same conclusion. And I think that comes full circle to the conversation of the mundane. I think that's why there's so much wisdom in 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 these in the religions that I don't describe to I think are some of the most intelligent thoughtful wonderful marvelous things that have ever been invented because they do give you a chance especially with a guru. And I I talk about that a a bit in the book too, of like, we have a hard time in the West with meditation because not having, there's a lot of reasons, but the wisdom of having a prayer for your right foot and having a a prayer for your left shoe and having a prayer for the the threshold, it seems so freaking ridiculous on the surface. But then when you think about what the impact of it it is, ignore the pedantic process. What's the impact of that pedantic process? And the impact of that process is constant awareness of yourself in time and space, which we call just being yeah. present. Yeah. You know? And which which could be sober and it should be. Uh, or or you could be like your your sense of presence comes because you're you're on something. You know, whether an actual you took something or you're you're tuning into a state of mind that that is basically your your form of escapism you know like for my father christianity was this form of was a form of escapism until he found genuine christianity over, over time oh good i'm glad i'm glad to hear you found it out. christianity that's good yeah that's good yeah that, it was an that, interesting that... story it took him i think uh, 47 years and then the last two years then he passed away <laughs> wow okay <laughs> Wow. It's his life, his life accomplishment. I figured it out. <laughs> hey, you know, that's not bad. That ain't bad as far as I'm concerned. Figuring out whatever it is that allows you to move through the world with a little bit of peace and grace. Like, if you can figure that out by the time you die, you did a pretty good job. Amen. Amen to like, that, brother. Seriously. Amen to that, brother. Seriously. Like I, I recognized how I recognized well, my, how privileged I am to have had so much time, a lo- even if most of that time was like homeless and living on the streets as a musician, to have so much time to think, to really, really mm-hmm. think, you know. Totally. Most people are. 100% agree with you there. Yeah, most people are taking care of kids and like working dead end jobs and. 
Like, there's just, life has so much. And then we have an endless supply of dirt cheap, really expensive entertainment. As far as, like, it's cheap for us, but it takes, like, $8 million for your, like, average movie nowadays, you know? But, like... With, with so much to do and so much demanding our attention, I really feel like as high-minded as I as I like to be and perceive myself occasionally, um, as far as like being very cerebral that way, I mean, it's it's really important to remember for me what the baseline is. And for me, I would go back to the baseline for me as a human being is naked and afraid in the jungle. That's the baseline. Anything above that is like pretty dope, you know, for like for most of for most of my for most of like human existence, we definitely didn't have what we have now. And I'm doing I'm doing really well. And if we can just find a way that makes us live a bit more peacefully, a bit more soberly, I think that. That's a really good goal to have to move through life with. And if we can figure that out by the time we die, good on us. Good on your dad. Amen. Yeah. All right, my brother, I better uh, I better get going. It's kind of late where I am. Yeah, um, it is. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And, thank you. Uh, it was really wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much sharing your time and sharing your expertise with me. I really appreciate it. You have a wonderful night, and I will speak with you soon. And I'm really looking forward to that next yeah. book. One last time, where can people find your book that's already out and available? It's on uh, Amazon. Uh, just search for Yoga Kata, Yoga Sutras, K-A-T-H-A, if you're wondering how to spell Kata. <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll see about the next one. We'll see. We'll see where it ends up. All right. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful night. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today. I hope that you got something out of this conversation. And remember, stay curious and stay uncomfortable. 